Hello, and welcome to Trade Talks. I'm Tom O'Brien, the Executive Director of the Center for International Trade and Transportation at California State University, Long Beach. And I'm very pleased to welcome you to this launch of what we hope will be an engaging quarterly series where we invite uh, around the negotiating table industry experts to discuss pertinent issues uh, relevant to the trade sector. And I'm pleased to be joined today for this first Trade Talks by Paul Bingham, who's the Vice President of Trade, Ports, and Logistics for the Economic Development Research Group, or EDR, uh, which is a Boston-based company. And Paul joins us from Southern California. So welcome to Trade Talks, Paul. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here today. Um, let's start by learning a little bit more about what you do as a trade economist and, and why it's important to our understanding of the trade sector. Uh, my career has been based around consulting, uh, looking at international trade. And mostly that involves providing market analysis and forecasts to decision makers. And EDR Group's specialty is working in conjunction with public sector agencies, uh, feeding decision makers, either elected officials or sometimes um, the staff in terms of their own ability to do analysis of markets, and trade specifically in terms of its importance in the economy. So we do economic impact studies, we do cost-benefit analysis that gets used in prioritization of projects, and we do forecasting as well as regular market analysis looking at what's changing and the expectations for how it's likely to change in the future. No, that's good, and I think that's, a, that's an ideal setup for this, for this first trade talks, where we want to talk about the state of global trade mm -hmm. uh, at home and abroad for reasons that you mentioned that include the, the health and well-being of our nation's economy as a whole. So I, I, let's start with talking a little bit about what the, the, the trade sector is, uh, because it, it means different things to, to different people. So from your perspective as an economist, how do you define the trade sector? Um, I look first at the industries that are directly tied to trade. So that's something like a customs broker or a freight forwarder or a longshoreman or somebody who's primarily engaged in trade. But it goes way beyond that in terms of its importance in the economy. Um, there are many people who have at least a portion of their job tied to trade. So what we end up looking at is the, what we call the trade intensity of industries. How much of their supplies, how much of the components and the inputs that they use in production comes from overseas, how much of that is traded, and very importantly, in fact increasingly importantly, how much of it is sold overseas, how much is exported. So even though industries may not be defined or focused primarily on trade, from the trade perspective, it's an enormous proportion of the economy that's tied to trade. And this includes not just trade in goods that we think of traditionally, but also trade in services. The U.S. is a tremendously successful exporter of services in addition to commodities. What are some of the services that you're, that you're talking about? We sell financial services. We sell consulting services. We sell entertainment. We sell tourism. We sell education. Those are all classified as, as services that are purchased by foreigners. The country earns income from selling those to, to um, countries overseas or their residents or their businesses, and we earn, ex we earn earnings from those exports um, as export activity that if we didn't trade, we wouldn't get and we wouldn't have to support our economy. Does the, does the sector include manufacturing, retail? Is that all part of the the mix as well when you look at the numbers? When I look at the numbers, absolutely, because very much it's tied to the successfulness, the competitiveness of, of the various industry sectors we have, the manufacturing that's oriented towards export, um, and increasingly the extractive resources and even the service businesses that are selling their services, their products um, overseas to customers that actually in the world economy make up the biggest part of the market. Most 
people in the world are not living in the United States. The biggest market is overseas, so for the economy to be successful, being able to sell internationally and engage in trade inherently to do that is, is part of what is I consider important as the trade sector. And I think most of the people joining us around the negotiating table today for trade talks um, are consumers of, of goods, particularly those of us who, who get goods shipped to our home. Um, how does the last mile uh, impact the, the trade sector? Is that part of what you look at as well? Um, it goes right to the door. If I order something using e-commerce or I, I make an order in a store or some other a channel through the distribution centers that get delivered to my home, I'm the endpoint for that trade. If it's an import, even sometimes it's a product that I think of as made domestically, there may be an input to that that's from that's internationally uh, traded. So, ev so everybody watching is a part of the supply chain then? It would be incredibly difficult to escape being part of the <laughs> supply chain um, and, and live in, in the United States today. Well, one of the things I know that, that in the state of California that, that the state's grappling with in, in trying to uh, figure out the, the effectiveness of the trade sector is, is measuring it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and competitiveness is one of those areas that the state's interested in, in measuring. Um, I suppose you have to start with what the freight sector is first and foremost, but once right. you know what it is, how do you measure it? I mean, it, it seems like it's a lot of component parts. Well, the first measurements are the most simple ones, which is the value of what is traded. So it's the declared value of, of commodities or the value of the services that are traded either on the import or the export side and how those change over time. Then you can look at the unit prices of those, how the, the on a unit basis, how those have changed as prices increase or decrease in terms of trade prices. Um, and then you go beyond that in terms of the indirect and the, and the induced effects that tie to that a fundamental trade activity and follow it through the economy as companies are tied to each other, as jobs are related to each other um, through spending and respending in the economy as we all interact with each other, spending our wages or earning income from those that, that purchase services that we help pr provide. And I suppose you can look at the, at the state of, of global trade at various levels, right? It, it will Absolutely. look differently if, it's, if you're looking at it internationally, nationally, right. at the state level, or, or regionally as well. It, it can be very confusing in terms of how one chooses to de define it, um, whether you're a macroeconomist or an industry economist or somebody looking just from a financial perspective or somebody that doesn't look so much at the financial side but looks maybe at the physical transportation side. Those metrics all can be applied in the context for each of those specialists that are looking at whatever is relevant to them. And that's the same for services as well as, as, well as goods. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that I know the supply chain and trade, the trade sector doesn't like is uncertainty. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Car we, the, I think the, the, the phrase is cargo follows the path of least resistance. Um, we have a new administration in Washington. Mm -hmm. um, we have some glimpse into what may be the priorities of the administration. Um, but there's a lot of question about what those decisions and those priorities mean for not only the nation as a whole, but for the port sector for distribution and warehousing, uh, cross-border trade. Um, without putting you on the spot, right? <laughs> what, what, are the, what do the tea leaves say um, when you're sort of looking at the discussions that are emanating from, from Washington? Well, first off, it, it's still very early to, to really know what's going to play out. And there's a lot of factors at work. But I think some of the fundamentals we've seen in the very early stages of this administration is that they've been following up on campaign promises, perhaps in ways that some didn't anticipate they actually would. Now, there's a lot of constraints on the administration in terms of what they can actually do because they have to work with Congress if they want to make certain changes or they have to deal with constraints that are imposed by the courts 
or perhaps even more importantly from a trade perspective from our trade partners who may choose to, to go along or not with what we choose to, to try to do in terms of affecting change. But there's no question that there is an intent stated going back through the campaign to make some significant change, perhaps the most significant change in national trade policy that we've seen in, in several decades. The uncertainty around that is enormous. The consequences of that could be tremendous in different directions, where the unknowns are as large now as they have been in, in my career in terms of what could potentially affect trade from a national policy-driven perspective. What could, be, what could happen to trade as a consequence of policy decisions and international trade agreements or other regulations or rules or taxes or all the other mechanisms that have been discussed that could affect trade. And that raises uncertainty on the part of business, which then um, affects their behavior and affects the performance of trade, even if the, if the proposed actions aren't followed through on, just because of the level of uncertainty that businesses are facing right now. So that so there's uncertainty both here at home and, and abroad that could yes. impact the, um, the response. Talk about, I want to talk about some of those uh, areas in particular. I think there was, a, there was a fair amount of talk about TPP yes. right, during the, during the campaign, and I know a lot of people's eyes glazed over. You get into the minutiae. <laughs> but can, let's talk a little bit about what TPP is and what not having it might mean, where some of those unintended consequences might be of trade policy. Yeah, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement was a major achievement in terms of trade negotiation on a multilateral basis through many countries. So it was basically the, the Pacific Rim of Pacific trading countries in North and South America and Asia, with importantly the exclusion of China. Mm -hmm. um, it was an achievement of the Obama administration and President Obama pushed hard, some can argue about how hard, to, to get it um, approved, but um, ultimately the country has backed away from it. The Trump administration has come in and, and essentially stopped any chance that it's going to be approved. So the U.S. has withdrawn. We've said we're not going to approve it. And under the rules of the TPP, there were f certain required acceptances and approvals by the member countries for it to take effect. And by the U.S. dropping out, it's extremely unlikely now that it's going to go forward as negotiated as it was. It doesn't mean all of that negotiating work between all of those countries will be discarded, however. There's, there's many scenarios, amongst which could be a new TPP that leaves the United States out and includes somebody else like China. So you could have a very different trade regime that still proceeds forwards, but that leaves the United States out in ways perhaps that aren't even intended consequences of the U.S. choosing to not go forward with that agreement or to, to try to modify it or to renegotiate it in a way such that it could be salvaged, if you will, as opposed to just discarded in the intent stated by the administration of negotiating individual bilateral deals with individual trade partner countries. Right. I think the point is, is that while we may be disengaging to a certain extent, the rest of the world may use it as an opportunity to re-engage. And we've seen that already. That countries, our closest, biggest trade partner in Canada has already reached out to other trade partners overseas. Right away, they've acknowledged that they're in a very vulnerable position. If NAFTA is discarded, their biggest trade partner, an enormous proportion of their economy tied to the trade with the United States. If that's restricted or changed in certain ways, they're very vulnerable as an economy. So they've looked immediately to try to, they've been talking to the British, for example, already mm -hmm. about potentially what could they do differently than what they've done previously to try to insulate themselves or maybe reduce and mitigate some of what the risk is around trade with the United States. Similarly, we've seen discussions in, in Mexico about that. And many other countries are considering, well, maybe their, their trade stance vis-a-vis -vis the United States is going to be different in the future than it was previously, which may involve working with other countries that leave the United States out. Yeah, and you, you mentioned NAFTA and, and Mexico, and 
we, we probably should be particularly concerned about cross-border trade since yes. our two largest trading partners historically have been Canada, Canada and Mexico. Um, what, is, what does the uncertainty mean for, for that moving forward? Well, the, I think the, the greatest risk to the U.S. economy is probably not so much China that was gotten so much attention during the campaign, but probably is NAFTA. I mean, if we walk away from NAFTA and try to tear up that agreement that's been in place now since 1994 mm -hmm. and reverse some of the, the relationships, the interrelationships that now are very tightly woven between many different industries in North America, it will have costs and repercussions that will, without any doubt, will, will, will cause disruption and be a negative for the U.S. economy. Um, as we try to unwind supply chains. Similarly, we could have, beyond just walking away from the agreement, you could see retaliation on the part of Canada and Mexico. We had even NAFTA disputes that resulted in retaliation. If you remember the cross-border trucking issue where the United States didn't follow through on the commitments to opening access mm. to Mexican trucks, and the Mexicans under the agreement terms of NAFTA imposed tariffs selectively on U.S. goods that essentially stopped trade in some of those commodity categories significantly, which hurt certain politicians' districts, which they were targeted at at the time. Right. But it was evidence of proof that Mexico was willing to take action in retaliation to trade stances of the United States. And I don't think there's any reduction in that likely now going forwards, especially with the attention that Mexico's received from the administration. So, so the law of unintended consequences may apply. Absolutely. And I think we don't really even know where those might go because in many cases the politics in the within the foreign trade partner countries is not clear. Mm. You know, we see the rise potentially of a very different sort of regime in France with the current political campaign underway. And we've seen Brexit happen where the British have already pulled out of the EU. There's a lot of uncertainty that could be further accelerated or aggravated by changes in trade policy the United States engages in. And what will be the first set of indicators you'll look at to see where the impact of that policy is, is well, realized. Well, actually, some of it we can look at right now. We can look at foreign direct investment numbers. We can look at decisions being made that affect longer term the volumes of trade that we'll see in ways that aren't directly just the trade quantities that are passing through the borders in a particular quarter or particular month. It's those factors that start to influence trade and affect those supply chains. Is the globalization proceeding the way it had previously in terms of integration of supply chains with for foreign manufacturers making investments in North America and in the United States specifically? Do we see that continuing or do we see them pulling back? Do we see them halting some mm. of the, the, the um, investment decisions that they were making previously. And conversely, do we see U.S. manufacturers making changes where they're pulling back perhaps from some foreign markets, trying to say pacify something within the United States borders, but then at the same time yielding or giving up some potential for growth with international trade that would have been tied to business that they could have pursued with some different investment decisions. Mm. And would you anticipate seeing regional differences here in the U.S.? Where oh, you significantly might so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there are regions that are much more tied to certain types of trade than others, and obviously those that are on the coast, especially in California as a gateway to Asia, are much more dependent on trade than some of the interior uh, um, states and economies um, that are less tied directly to the performance of trade, but yet still have dependencies on trade. There is no state, there's no congressional district mm. that escapes some linked international trade. It's just the proportion that can affect significantly um, changes in economy in terms of employment or income or tax revenues is more vulnerable for the states on the borders than they are um, in the interior regions, regions of the country. And, and, and I assume that one of the, the hopes of the administration is, is creating an environment in which U.S. exports will find yes. a home elsewhere. And that's, again, where the, the, the response of our trading partners to some of the actions here could have an impact as well. 
whether those markets are developed or not. Absolutely. Just saying that you're going to grow exports is one thing. Actually having the markets opened up and being successful in selling into those end markets takes participation of the trade partners. You can't force them to buy your exports unless you really own them as a territory. I'm curious, I mean, the arc over, you know, over this last century has been toward freer trade, Absolutely. if not free trade, right? Um, do you see this as a critical point in our, in our at least recent history where that arc could shift? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we went through periods historically where the country retrenched. We did that in the 1920s and 1930s. But then following World War II, we followed really through to until this past election um, as a country on a bipartisan basis. We've pursued expansions and liberalization of trade with lots of exceptions and qualifiers. But fundamentally, the underlying approach was to engage further with the world, world economy and to try to encourage our trade partners to do the same thing, which helped them in terms of economic development and certainly certainly helped the United States in terms of its ability to expand in the aggregate. Now, there's been winners and losers that we can talk about, and in fact, those are very significant in some cases, and that's really where the discussion about trade ends up focusing, is that winners and losers issue. But fundamentally, the idea, the very basic idea of international trade, where you have comparative advantage, where you can specialize in production, trade with somebody else, and you're both better off, doesn't go away because somebody's frustrated with some of the dislocation that can happen with trade um, if it's not accounted for and addressed up front when you first engage in the trade agreements that lead to the potential for those gains in trade. Right. And I think we want to talk about some of those winners and losers when we, we come back in, in the next segment um, and shift yeah. to a discussion of uh, winners and losers globally, but also here regionally within the U.S. Welcome back to Trade Talks. I'm Tom O'Brien of the Center for International Trade and Transportation at California State University, Long Beach. And I've been joined uh, for this inaugural Trade Talks by Paul Bingham, who's the Vice President of Trade, Ports, and Logistics for the EDR Group. Um, and we've been discussing, Paul, the, the state of global trade. Yeah. Uh, and we talked a little bit about some of the big picture, um, the, the big picture issues, the evolution of trade, the uncertainty surrounding a new administration here and potentially uh, abroad. And I want to talk now a little bit with you about the state of global trade here in the U.S. We, we closed the last segment by talking about comparative strengths and weaknesses. And I know this is something that's of interest to you because in addition to all of the things you do and the number crunching, um, you serve as a member of the U.S. Commerce uh, Department's Federal Advisory Committee on Supply Chain Competitiveness. Mm -hmm. um, so let's start there. Um, how competitive are we as a nation? right now, given uh, the long-term view? The long-term view is um, we're a very competitive trading country, but not nearly as competitive as we could be. Um, that's, so there's sort of the two sides to look at that as a classic economist with, with two perspectives on it. Um, we know that there are many things that could be done from a, a um, regulatory, a legal, a, um, a, a policy level that could affect the competitiveness of the country. There's also changes in management style or even, even um, the, the culture of the, um, the business sector that could improve the competitiveness of the country. Um, at the same time, um, there are other countries that are not sitting still trying to gain on the United States and take market share and be very competitive as well. And they're making investments in some cases substantially in excess of what the United States is in areas that benefit their trade competitiveness. And understanding the, the difference between those, the, what are the lessons learned, what are the best practices, and, and that can go both ways in terms of also perhaps what we make as a policy choice to 
avoid doing in the United States. Um, but a full understanding and being transparent about it and being explicit in when we make other policy decisions that can impact trade, understand what those consequences are for the, the trading portion of the economy. And I assume you look at some of those key indicators that we discussed earlier that yeah. would indicate to you um, when a country is performing at its best. That's right. And what are some of those that, that, you, that you look at now to sort of compare one country to another. Well, we start from a macroeconomist with what you know the, the Trump administration has been quick to jump on in their campaign, which or, or, or before they became the administration in their campaign, the, the trade deficit. You know, do we import more than we export? How competitive are we? Do, do we have a greater appetite for foreign-produced goods than we're successful in competing to produce goods to be sold overseas? You know, we know, for example, in the United States, a very low percentage of the of the uh, total companies that exist in business in the country actually engage in export. And that's an evidence, and we can contrast that with metrics that look at other countries, you know, such as the uh, major countries in Europe, that have a much higher percentage of their business community that actually engages in foreign trade. You know, fundamentals like that are very basic to look at, but then we can, we can drill down and look in much more detail on a commodity or by industry sector to say how much of their revenues, how much of their earnings comes from engaging in foreign trade. Or conversely, how much of the inputs, how much do they depend on suppliers that are overseas and therefore depend on foreign trade. Those metrics all start to come into play and then we can look at financial flows, we can look at um, foreign direct investment, we can look at the, the net in terms of how much the U.S. companies are investing overseas versus how much they're investing within the United States. That's something clearly of interest to the current administration. And there are other metrics that we can follow over time in terms of um, comparisons of more broad economic measures of things like labor productivity. Mm. Um, the, the, the factor inputs, the economists call them, in terms of how much we get out of them, how efficient we are as an economy in using those. And then we can look at those from the perspective of how those are used in the traded portions of the economy. How well are we, are we using those, say, for example, in export manufacturing or resource extraction? Or how efficient are we on the retail side for distributing imports that we get from overseas? You mentioned things like regulatory issues and policy. Um, how do you measure impacts like that where it's often about perception and not about the numbers? Absolutely. There is, uh, in many cases, what you find in the supply chain literature, which is appropriate for the business management discipline, is surveys. Actually go and measure the, measure the perceptions, measure the intent, measure the feelings of management who ultimately are the decision makers that are going to act on those perceptions. Their perceptions of risk or their perceptions of business friendliness or their perceptions of what they should do in terms of being competitiveness, how risk averse they are, how willing they are to work with other potential partners either overseas or, or with the United States to be better in terms of being uh, competitors in terms of exports or improve their imports and, and how, how, how willing are they to extend themselves in their supply chain to be transparent and, and share information to capitalize and gain on, on those, um, those opportunities where com companies that work together can both gain. So you're talking about a measure of reliability as a trading partner. Absolutely. Reliability is a key part of it and in fact something that you mentioned, you've mentioned earlier that is absolutely essential to understanding how trade opportunities can be successful. The, the reliability of supply chains is very important to those that are going to invest in them and depend on them. 
and that, that we shouldn't ignore those in terms of just measuring something like the pure cost of something. It's not mm -hmm. only the cost of the item, it's can you deliver it for that cost? First of all, not broken, but, but, right. but can you do it reliably? And, and, and if you don't have reliable supply chains, then you find shifts that will occur where either customers get frustrated or, or companies start to have financial difficulties, and then they'll make changes. It won't be sustainable, even if the costs are low, if the reliability is not there. Now, and I assume at the international level, you have to factor in things like corruption and as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And th those factors can also end up dominating a final decision that's made in terms of the potential for a business opportunity, but it, it's still not the only factors that, that matter in terms of competitiveness. Right. Shippers have options, right? That's right. Absolutely. Um, so we've talked about some of the, the comparative strengths of us as a trading nation. Um, where, where would you place us relative to other countries when it comes to our weaknesses, both real and perceived? Well, we have some very significant weaknesses on the infrastructure side. Um, we have a very seriously decayed, deteriorating, aged infrastructure in this country, and it is having operational costs in terms of unreliability, mm -hmm. but also in higher operating costs from less efficient use of the system. And it, it's a limitations in, times, in terms of use of capacity, which leads to inefficient use of the system, consuming more transportation resources than we would have to consume on in, if we had better infrastructure. That has lots of unintended consequences mm -hmm. in terms of unnecessary expense, greater emissions, environmental impacts. Um, it, it uses labor in ways that is inefficient and also can lead to dissatisfaction on the part of employees that have to c cope with, with insufficient infrastructure. And I, I would point to that as probably the greatest weakness of the, of the country and one where the trend is not in a positive direction. Now we have discussions on the part of the administration to turn that around, but we so far don't have actions in that direction. And that's, that's both a short-term and a long-term goal, I would presume. Absolutely. I know the, I think it's the American Society of Civil Engineers does yes. its annual scorecard and our infrastructure still gets something around a D plus, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they've just updated that, that scorecard and my company actually had been privileged to do some uh, economic impact consequences analysis of that, but unfortunately it, it's with a bad result to say how much is this, what, what the ASCE calls the failure to act is costing the economy in terms of those inefficiencies across industry and what it costs us with the, the country not reaching its potential as an economy because of that. And solving those infrastructure challenges is not just a next quarter or next year no. solution. We're talking 10, this is, 20, 30 years. This is a long-term issue. This is very long-term. In fact, it will continue through all of our careers and all of our lives because the challenges are, are that big and will be that long-lasting. Even though infrastructure lasts a long time, it doesn't last forever. Eventually, it needs to be replaced, whether it's the interstate system or, or a port terminal or an airport runway or just a, a road in your neighborhood. Is there something about the decentralized nature of the way we fund transportation and projects in this country that makes us more vulnerable, do you think? Well, we don't have national planning for infrastructure, much as some people might think we do. It's very much decentralized. It's down where the metropolitan areas have tremendous control and influence, and then at the state level. And the federal government has an indirect influence and, and tremendous influence through the funding, but they're not making the decisions. And that means we have suboptimal decision-making in terms of a national perspective. It's not optimized nationally. Not that politically we want necessarily to go there, but clearly we made a decision as a country politically to go in a direction of this decentralized decision making, perhaps without fully understanding the consequences for the potential efficiency of the system as a whole, thinking of the whole nation in terms of its transportation system. Is it presumable that, you know, trade lanes could bypass the U.S. altogether, I mean, given our, our prominence as a trading nation and leader? 
it's, it's very unlikely that major exporters in the world will want to ignore the U.S. market if they can, can't find customers somewhere else. But clearly, if there's impediments that are great enough to trade, if there's alternatives for them to make sales somewhere else, they might focus their attention, their investment, and their, their perhaps their, their market relationships first with somebody else. And we may, may be left with um, inferior product choices or not with the same level of, of benefits that we've enjoyed when we've been able to entice those, those trade partners to engage with us as much as they have in the past. Are there places within the U.S. that you see as sort of doing the investment piece better than others? Um, it's, it, I wish I could say that there was a state that had great policies and was doing everything right, and unfortunately, I can't find one. There's various levels of failure in terms of you know, how poorly states do it, but um, it, it, I wish I could say that here's the model, here's the single best practice, this is the way you do it if you want to compete as a state. You can point to, to individual um, municipal agencies that engage in best practices and are very proactive in terms of their engaging in what needs to be done to plan for, tra for trade and transportation capacity and performance. But in many cases, ultimately, it's not even the, the professional staff or those planning agencies that really matter. Ultimately, it's the politicians, and that comes right back to the population that elects them mm. in terms of what they're looking for. And I try not to be cynical about it, but sometimes, you know, it maybe gets back to our, our ability to have civic education in the schools for, you know, do we understand as citizens participating in, in, in our society what we need to do collectively for all of us to benefit? And that may include subjecting ourselves to taxes or allowing ourselves to be um, engaged in pl planning or zoning or something else that maybe personally we don't necessarily like, but at least to be able to understand there's a reason that, it's, that it needs to be conducted. Well, as an educator, I'm happy to hear that we have a role <laughs> in all of this. Um, you, yeah, you, you mentioned the, you know, the, the, the potential investments to take advantage of trade opportunities, and I know one of the things that has been on, on everybody's radar screen in recent years is an expanded Panama Canal, yeah. um, expanded Suez Canal, and what that might mean for where trade goes. Are we seeing any impacts that might say something about um, opportunities here in the U.S.? Well, those are good examples of major infrastructure investments made by countries outside the United States for them to benefit from trade. Both Panama and Egypt as countries have made the decision to make a big investment. In fact, proportionally much bigger than the United States could imagine making um, in infrastructure that serves trade. Now, obviously, they earn revenue from that, and they earn a return, but it's also them having faith in the potential for growth in international trade and for them to be able to benefit. And we don't see something quite at the same scale in terms of the percentage of the, or the level of commitment within the United States to try to benefit from trade. And yet we see uh, there are repercussions that affect the United States whether we engage or, or try to participate with what those foreign countries are doing or not. We've seen some shifts in trade patterns through the, the Suez Canal before the Panama Canal expansion was completed. And now subsequently with the Panama Canal expansion completed, we've started to see some of the shifts that were analyzed and discussed for many, many, many years before the decision to expand was even made. That potentially affects supply chains, as potentially affects um, U.S. companies and U.S. Um, consumers and U.S. employment around the country. And I know I've, you know, we've we've seen in the in the literature and in the in the trade publications, uh, um, sort of a new understanding and awareness of shifts in manufacturing patterns globally with white rising uh, wages in mm -hmm. China. You're seeing movement of the manufacturing center west yes. to places like Vietnam, and that makes alternative trade routes 
more possible or, or even likely. Absolutely, and that, sh that migration is not likely to be something that, that stops happening, that there will continue to be evolution as countries, the developing countries especially, go through their evolutions of stages of growth that we've seen through the countries. If we look over the decades in Asia, from Japan to the newly industrialized economies such as Korea or Taiwan, um, and then moving on into eventually into China and now into Southeast Asia, all those countries um, engaging more with the world, engaging more with world trade, and leveraging the ability to start with some levels of manufacturing to capture some market share and to grow based on export-led growth. But that's not over. There's countries that, that really haven't been engaged in that that still have the potential to do so in the future, whether it's the infrastructure-bound rules in India or the tremendous potential in the continent of Africa right. that, that has huge populations with many, many countries that are not really engaged in trade except in the most basic resource extraction kinds of ways. So that's where some of that attention paid to who the trading partners are, what the, the terms of those agreements yes. are becomes, becomes really critical. Absolutely. And I think often in, in the past, we've looked, you know, we've often approached as a nation trading agreements from a more geopolitical perspective, yeah. right, um, um, than uh, uh, from a pure trading perspective. Um, the other thing that, that we can't ignore and its impact on trade is the explosion in e-commerce mm -hmm. and what that means globally. Um, it is certainly uh, a new way of doing business here in the U.S., but that, that trend is being replicated elsewhere around the world. What does it mean for global supply chains and how we adjust as a trading nation? It's changing the whole entire characteristics of the distribution and freight networks, which expands, includes over across borders uh, through time. Um, I don't think we fully anticipate yet where all the technology will lead us in terms of things like automated ordering or, or um, new methods of, of purchasing and acquisition that we, we haven't even envisioned yet, other than that what we've already seen to date in the 20 years or so that we've really had internet purchasing um, has been a, a transformation that's been profound. Um, you know, the, the elimination of entire categories of brick and mortar stores where all the chains are, are essentially gone from the business. And patterns that we as consumers probably didn't really realize were happening were, mm -hmm. as our behavior has changed as we found it easier to engage in e-commerce. E the supply chains are, are, are evolving as well to follow that as the companies that are more heavily engaged in e-commerce um, sales and delivery are adapting their networks to better serve their customers in terms of delivery of those products. So a focus on a distribution network that can feed um, small units of delivery to your home or maybe to your place of work rather than deliveries of large quantities to, to brick and mortar stores which you then go shop at from, from your own home. Um, is changing some of the supply chain demands. But there's also the, the, um, the accelerated pace and the expectations of delivery times where you know, now we've seen um, deliveries go from two days to one day to same day in a very short period of time. And it's not clear in the future that that will, will stop. In fact, it's likely to pervade greater um, se segments of the commodity categories, which puts different demands on the supply chains than we had before and different demands on the networks, especially where people live. So it gets right. concentrated in metropolitan areas, and that has implications for the infrastructure, it has implications for planners, it has implications for the efficiency of the use of the freight system, all of which I don't think we fully understand yet because the pace of change has been so quick. And I, I presume, as you, as you indicated, that when you're talking about next day, next hour delivery, um, that means that distribution center, that warehouse function is moving in a lot closer to the urban Absolutely. fridge where normally it might chase the lower cost uh, real estate at the exurban or, or in even That's more right. rural areas. 
Um, and, and I think the numbers indicate, correct me if I'm wrong, that we still have a long way to, to go in terms of the percentage of purchases that we make online. So there's only, room for, there's only room for growth. Yeah, the, the, the ability to sustain the growth that we've seen goes for a long ways ahead of us as we go through the demographics of aging populations that, that don't engage in e-commerce and, and the youngsters coming up that only would think of buying things that way, right. as well as um, the expansion in the technologies for delivery, that things that we haven't even envisioned yet, like, like uh, whole fleets of drones delivering out of parcel right. vans or something like that. Uh, so we're talking about what, what I think the industry would call omni-channel yes. right, distribution, and, and I find it interesting that the uh, that Amazon is also opening its own brick and mortar yeah. stores, or maybe hedging its bets. Um, and and what about opportunities for things like three D printing? You know, how do how does an economist approach something that's not that's just barely here, but often talked about? Uh, that is one of the most difficult ones to fully understand how it could affect and transform the economy. But clearly, it also could be very profound in terms of shifting supply chains dramatically from the way they exist today, where what's exchanged are the very raw source materials that would go into 3D printing and the information flows that accompany it, but, f but replace a lot of the physical flows. In fact, you could replace an enormous proportion of the, f of the actual um, network use um, by having that, that localized, smaller scale production that's still efficient and still of the quality that the consumers or the businesses demand in ways that we haven't fully even understood yet how that's going to evolve. But that can, that can certainly change the demand for freight transport. And one thing we know about both international trade and freight is it's purely derived demand. People don't do it for fun. You only engage in it to serve the, the needs that you have to be able to um, take advantage of the cost opportunities or the competitiveness. And if that shifts because of the adoption of much more radically different manufacturing um, technologies that allow different geography, that, that could change freight transportation the most it has in 100 years. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of those maybe canaries in the coal mine that might tell us where we're going both nationally and, and here uh, at home. Welcome back to Trade Talks. I'm Tom O'Brien, and I'm joined today by Paul Bingham, uh, the Vice President of Trade, po Trade Ports and Logistics for the EDR Group. And uh, Paul, before the break, we were talking about sort of the state of global trade, some more of the big picture discussion. Um, I want to now sort of lead us into a discussion about what it means regionally, because mm -hmm. both of us are here in, in Southern California. Um, do you do you look at any potential canaries in the coal mine that give you an indication of we need to be concerned about where the trade sector is heading? I'm thinking, you know, we had a, we had a, a significant bankruptcy in, the, in ocean carriage this past year. Um, is that something that should be concerning us? Um, I think there's certainly a call for awareness that wasn't there before as much as it should have been on the part of a lot of the supply chain participants. Um, a major, you know, the seventh largest carrier in the world going bankrupt with very little notice. Now, some people said you could have been able to figure it out several months in advance, but really it was unprecedented. We went through the Great Recession with none of those big carriers going bankrupt under much more severe um, strain and financial stress than what we've seen lately. So that really is a wake-up call to the continued uh, fragility of the, on the financial side of a lot of our international trade infrastructure in terms of the companies, the private sector companies, for whom it's their main or their only business. And I think that that led to disruptions that 
were um, expensive and um, surprising to some of the supply chain management in ways that now they're going to go back and have to look at their risk management and try to understand reliability better than they obviously did when this happened. And that, that has implications locally in terms of things like the terminal ownership and operations um, within the ports here locally. And the companies here that have relied on those carriers really without a second thought about would they be there tomorrow and actually be able to provide service. Yeah, talk about that a little bit further. I think the Hanjin bankruptcy was a major disruption and it, it had impacts at different levels globally and, um, and locally. What are some of those disruptions, apart from terminal operations? Well, we, we had cargo, obviously, first that was on board the ships that suddenly had questions about whether they can be offloaded and delivered. Um, you had so, so you had supply stockouts and supply disruptions that were not anticipated. Obviously, you had lost sales and you had lost inventory value of some of those goods. Um, great expense to make up, to mitigate, to reposition equipment, or to have things redelivered at expenses that weren't budgeted or weren't planned for. Um, people that had to work overtime or make up for some of the other disruptions. Now, in the long term, that is all, you know, all goes away, and that's not really the problem. But what what lingers and, and, and survives is the the questions about the reliability of these carriers. Are, is is the international trading infrastructure in terms of the industry that actually provides those services as solidly grounded? as many shippers and many in the supply chain thought that it was. You know, could we see further, kind of, further problems that crop up? Partly in that case because there is, is a situation where it's not purely competitive. There's state ownership. There's mm -hmm. actually other governments that have interests in these, these companies and, and either directly or indirectly have supported or, or in some way subsidized them in the past that in this case the Korean government chose not to do with Hanjin and actually let them go into bankruptcy. That raises more questions about the reliability of the international system of trade in terms of the, the infrastructure and the capacity that we're using today to keep everything running. Yeah, t talk a little bit more about that if you can. I mean, what were the conditions that were in place that allowed the seventh largest carrier in the world to go bankrupt? Well, if we go back, we have to go back a little bit in history to the Great Recession at the, the turn of, of the last decade where uh, we had tremendous downturn in trade, and then we had one year in 2010 with very strong rebound and growth in trade. But subsequent to that, we've had relatively low growth in trade from a longer-term perspective globally, which has resulted in lower volume increases year to year um, for those carriers to fight over in terms of market share. And at the same time, um, those carriers were investing in massive new capacity, bigger ships that were um, able to handle uh, much more ca uh, cargo than was actually being demanded in the marketplace. And we had a classic problem of a supply and demand mismatch where prices had to fall to deal with that. But what it's meant is, is that these carriers have lost money in most of the years of the last decade collectively as an industry, not just individual companies. So their financial uh, footing is very weak and it carries through to some of their trade partners or their, their, the partners that they deal with. So whether they put pressure on the port authorities or they put pressures on the shipbuilders or they put pressures on other suppliers, it has consequences across the supply chain, not just within those container carrier companies. So should we be expecting another Hanjin in the near future? You know, I, at this point, I think there's a question about whether they'll all survive. I think what we're seeing more quickly and has happened subsequently is there's more consolidation in the industry where some of the weaker carriers are being bought up or merged or having pressure to exit the industry. And I think what we're likely to see is further consolidation with eventually some new level of stability with fewer participants in the industry 
and perhaps better ability to manage the, the growth in capacity so that they can manage the supply to better match the demand that they're seeing and therefore not get into this desperate situation where um, they can't achieve the rates to actually cover their costs. And that's not unlike what we've experienced in the rail sector and in other sectors of the uh, yeah, trading historically economy. in transportation economics this has happened before because the barriers to entry are relatively low and they're obviously inherently mobile assets that you can move around. Um, so it's been very hard to, to resist the temptation that's there, especially when some management has hubris and thinks they can all take market share from each other by just investing in more capacity. Yeah, and, and that's a nice segue to, to sort of talk a little bit about, about the Southern California mm -hmm. region. Um, you know, over the past 20 years, uh, we've enjoyed consistent growth, uh, increased market share, um, but we're starting to see some erosion uh, in that. Um, but at the same time, we're a place that can handle the larger vessels that you talked about. Yep. What's your both near-term and longer-term outlook for the, the trade sector in Southern California? The potential is still great for that last reason that you just mentioned, that the capacity to handle these largest ships is best still right here in Southern California. And as the pressure on that liner industry, the container industry, is there to find places to deploy these ships other than just on the Asia-Europe trades where they get deployed first, the, the biggest, longest ones, um, Southern California is well positioned to do that. Sort of ironically for the Panamanians, through the expansion of the canal, they put themselves back to where they were, say, 20 years ago, where vessels up to a certain size will fit, but not the largest ones in operation on the big transoceanic routes, and Southern California can handle them. So that provides an inherent advantage to Southern California, in addition fundamentally to the large size of the local population, which is a market that is hard for any of the, 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 the retail sector, at least, to ignore when they think about a, a port complex for which they want to have served um, their distribution networks. On the other hand, there's still opportunities to trade with um, other um, gateways around the country, and we see all of the ambitions of ports that would like to be larger than they are today around the continent usually end up focusing on Southern California to try to grab market share, whether it's the Canadians or the Mexicans or um, any of the Gulf or East Coast ports. Most all of them think at the end of the day, well, we'll take market share from Southern California. Right. And that's a, that's, a, that's a reflection of the role that Southern California has played in feeding all of those markets as a gateway to the rest of the continent that has potential to be diminished. And, and in some ways, um, even though those large ships can be handled here, it's still likely that some of those supply chains um, over time will still be more closely aligned to where the endpoints for the populations of consumption are. Mm -hmm. And two-thirds of the population in the United States is still east of the Mississippi River, which is not an advantage that Southern California enjoys. It's probably worth talking a little bit about the size of these vessels. We can talk about large, but unless you've seen one of them, <laughs> you don't have an indication. Can you talk a little bit about the, the capacity we're talking about and why not every port can handle them? Yeah, these, these are, are really quite massive ships. Uh, and not that long ago, I, w I worked with a British naval architect who had something called the Flight of Fancy, which was a, a vessel that holds what the, the industry calls 18,000 TEUs, which is about conventionally, you know, 9,000 tractor trailer trucks all on one ship. And TEU being a 20-foot equivalent unit. Yeah, 20-foot equivalent unit, which has been the industry standard globally going back to the 1950s. But, the ships today, actually, that 18,000 TU ship, which was just something in somebody's imagination on a vessel, arch a, a, a naval architect's 
you know, fantasy really 20 years ago now has been superseded by vessels much larger than that already in operation. That, that inconceivable even, even 10 years ago that we would be where we are today with the sizes of these massive vessels with enormous surges of cargo, enormous concentrations of cargo all on one ship, putting tremendous demands on the port terminals, the longshore labor, um, all of the, the land side transportation networks to be able to handle that much cargo all at once in a particular facility. So that leads to things like the Middle Harbor and other expansions in the port of LA or Long Beach to try to be able to handle these larger ships with more cargo concentrated on one vessel. I think the, some of the figures I've seen suggest that these newer vessels are four football fields yes. long, <laughs> right? Six stories tall. So these are, these are significant uh, vessels. Yes. Yes, if you think of the, the thousands of tractor trailers that all go onto that one ship, and that's really what the equivalence is. Yeah. So the, the infrastructure is key. Absolutely. But what about the policy and regulatory environment that points toward future growth? Do you see evidence of that Absolutely. At, and at the margin, if you talk to the, the real decision makers in supply chains who are doing the long-term planning, that oftentimes matters more than the existing reliability or capacity of operations today. That's the planning for supply chains where um, for risk management, for reliability, to not put all your eggs in one basket, to put it bluntly sometimes, mm -hmm. um, Southern California can be viewed as a point of vulnerability. Um, many uh, more sophisticated, larger volume uh, shippers don't want single points of failure in their network. And if they view Southern California as potentially vulnerable to any sort of disruption for, from, from any direction, whether it's a natural disaster or, or a capacity constraint or something else, they don't want to have um, their business affected disproportionately by that and would like to even essentially pay an insurance to be able to use facilities elsewhere as part of their supply chains. I think that's perhaps one of the most significant risks to Southern California in the long term. And, and there's been some evidence of that in our recent past, right? Absolutely. We've seen diversion away from Southern California when there have been disruptions to the, the performance of the network here, and that's happened more than once over the last 20 years, so that there's evidence that that can happen again. And clearly, um, regulatory costs and impediments to operations from the perspective of idealized network operations on the part of an individual company um, tends to be an impediment to, to choosing um, to use Southern California as a gateway as opposed to another port, another port and related supply chain elements elsewhere in the country where perhaps those same impediments don't, um, don't affect the network and the performance quite so severely. So who, who do you see as our biggest competitors regionally? Is, is it other ports on the West Coast? Is it Houston, the Southeast? I, you know, it, it's hard to pin it to one because really you have to segment up the market and who's been able to take market share. And really it's a collection. It, it's the Canadians. It's, you know, Prince Rupert way up on the coast of British Columbia. Um, it's for, for, for serving the Mexican market rather than having transshipments through LA Long Beach, you have the, the Pacific ports in, in Mexico that directly serve the Mexican market now without a U.S. call for some of those vessels from Asia. Um, and it's the East Coast ports and the Gulf Coast ports serving and competing, um, so in some cases on the same trade routes through Suez or through Panama rather than coming into the U.S. West Coast um, with ports that are investing, ports that are expanding in, in the East Coast to, to try to compete, to, to be able to handle larger vessels as well. Yeah. You, you mentioned transshipment, and I, one of the things that this regional trade sector has done is been able to, to get goods off of those larger vessels to markets 
that are outside of our region. So yes. that that's the question: if if those uh, if that those goods can go in through other ports in the U.S. or, or in Mexico or Canada. That's right. We've seen investment on the part of the railroads who've tried to expand the intermodal networks away from just the the, the initial big line haul ones of Southern California to Chicago is sort of the the poster child for that, but now you see that this filling in of the intermodal rail network around the country, which makes more ports potentially have access to intermodal rail service inland points, not just off of the Southern California coast. Now, I, th I think long-term that's gonna also potentially affect market share as the efficiency of rail and the attractiveness in, of rail, especially if the railroads are able to maintain reliability are able to help take market share away from Southern California. That's a real threat. Is that something that is you see already happening now and that will just be getting worse or is there a plateauing? Where do you, where do there, you see that going? I, I think naturally there's a maturation point. What would most likely happen is that we'll see on the East Coast a greater adoption of intermodal rail, but then it'll shake out to a point where they use as much of it as is logical. And there'll probably some, be some impediments to um, the length of haul, how far you can go with a train efficiently. Um, with volumes large enough to make it pay off off of a particular port, say in contrast to the longer distance from California to much of those East Coast markets. Um, but there's still some, some substantial market share that could be gained by those other ports being better served by intermodal rail to sort of copy the longstanding practice that's been here in Southern California. And does that matter by commodity? So does, does a right. shipper who's moving one type of good are they more concerned about transit time versus cost? Yeah, or? Absolutely. The supply chains are very sensitive to the, the, the service time and the quality. Obviously, rail uh, can move continuously, but the, the, the historic legacy and the reputation is it doesn't move as fast as, um, as, as trucking can move and certainly not team trucking. Um, and that, that restrains the ability of railroads to gain market share for the most time-sensitive goods that, that don't move by air. Um, but it also provides opportunities to um, the, the rail service that is existing in Southern California to continue to bring some, some, uh, some business to Southern California because of the competitiveness and because of the investment that's already been made in that rail network um, to serve the ports here. As we're, as we're getting ready to sort of wrap up this, this first uh, segment of, of trade talks, I want to ask you to look into your crystal ball. I know, I know economics is a science, so you're not, <laughs> you're not in the business of, of, uh, of predictions, but if you do look into your crystal ball, tell me what changes you think we should anticipate in the next five to ten years. I think the, the, the pace of change in supply chains driven by adoptions of technology is something that we don't fully appreciate how much it's going to affect um, the performance of trade networks, the competitiveness of various industries, and therefore likely how the transportation network gets used. Um, I think there's potential for increases and decreases in various portions of use of the freight network as a consequence of that. We talked about some of the factors that would affect that, including um, localized manufacturing or advanced manufacturing, um, and some of the efficiencies uh, and the changes in e-commerce and, and the, and the um, methods used for omni-channel omni retailing, all of which um, have um, repercussions back for international trade and how the international trade networks will be used because source supplies can shift over time um, to accommodate and to adapt to whatever those demands and relative costs of production are. One of the examples would be greater adoption of automation and manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And we, we, t we touched on that a little bit in terms of how the U United States can be competitive, M maybe not just automation, but the greater adoption of technology, which could then affect how much we trade as opposed to how much we produce at home with shorter distance for um, delivery of those products to the customers. And I, I assume those trends are just as important to the freight stakeholders 
stakeholders, the people who move the goods, as it is to the elected officials who create the policy? Well, they, they should be. Hopefully that the freight stakeholders can have that medium to long-term perspective and not just be managing to the next quarter or the, or the next fiscal year. Um, and, and similarly also, hopefully, our elected officials and the public, public planning officials can also have a longer-term perspective and not just worry about the next election cycle in terms of decisions that are made that benefit society and, and benefit our economy. Well, Paul, I want to thank you for being our first guest uh, and for being uh, fascinating and providing what I think is really useful information for all of the freight stakeholders here uh, in Washington and abroad. Thank you. Um, and thanks to all of you for being part of this first Trade Talks series. Trade Talks is a quarterly segment where we'll be talking to experts in international trade uh, here and around the world. And I hope that you'll continue to join us at the negotiating table for the next round of Trade Talks. Until then, I'm Tom O'Brien. Thank you and goodbye.